Hi, my name is Lauren Dolby. This morning we light the fourth Advent candle, the candle of love. This candle symbolizes the depth of God's love for humanity that he would send his only son to come and dwell amongst us, lead her to a richer, fuller life, and offer us full life everlasting. Our scripture passage comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. You may follow along in your Bibles or look to the screens. During our Advent season, the scripture passages will be read in a language other than English to illustrate the whole world's longing for Christ. This morning, the scripture will be read in Spanish. En primer lugar dice, No has querido ni han sido de tu agrado las ofrendas, los sacrificios, los holocaustos, y las víctimas expiatorias, cosas todos que se ofrecen de acuerdo con la ley. Y a continuación añade, aquí vengo yo para hacer tu voluntad, con lo que deroga la primera disposición y confiere validez a la segunda. Y al haber cumplido Jesucristo la voluntad de Dios, ofreciendo su propio cuerpo una vez para, por todas, nosotros hemos quedado consagrados a Dios. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, you entered into our world as a helpless baby, setting aside your authority and power that we may come into a deeper, lasting relationship with you. Out of your great love for us, you gave us the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your abiding presence that reassures us of your love. Fill our hearts this day with that love that it overflows in us, and we share it with those in need. Loving God, be with us now as we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Welcome to our December 23rd service. The title of the sermon today is called A Christmas Story. And uh, I want to continue what I started in the summer here. I went on a sabbatical this summer and after that sabbatical, I shared uh, about my, uh, for me, very significant experiences in a sermon that I called a sabbatical story. And it turned out that, uh, it turns out I've been experiencing a great, I think I would say, and deep personal and spiritual revival in my personal life. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to sum it up, but uh, I would say something to the effect of, it feels like God took my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. And I can't believe it, but um, it's, it just feels like I've sort of become a Christian all over again. And I didn't think that was possible, and I wasn't expecting it. And I want to continue to share some of that story here today and weave it in with the Christmas story. And then next week, when we have just one service, I'm going to take a couple of pieces out of today's sermon and unpack those pieces for those of us that are here next week. Uh, the whole story sort of began for me in Spokane uh, last summer, about a year and a half ago, and it continues uh, to this day. Today is part two. We are tight a little bit on time today, so I'm going to ask you to stay actively engaged, and not just in your own heads, but with me. And so I need you to somehow find a way to communicate to me that you are tracking with me and that you got it. And you can say things like, amen, 
You can say things like, got it, or help him, or move along. Whatever you think would communicate to me that I need to keep going. All right? Got it? Got it. Okay. Let me read the passage for us again in English. First, he said sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here is the first thing that I want us to understand about today's passage. The law which God gave to Israel was the first of its kind. And its intent from the very beginning was not so that we would keep the law. The lawgiver, before it was given to us, knew that the law could not be kept. That's why there was such a thing as the law. If we were capable of keeping the law, you don't have to give the law because we'd already be keeping it. But because we don't understand what the law is, because there's disorder in our minds and in our hearts, the law had to give in so that it can be an accurate mirror of our condition to show us that we, by nature, are not law keepers. In other words, it was given to demonstrate our inability to keep the law and our need from salvation from our inability to understand or keep the law. Got it. That means, another way to say that is, the law was always a system created for the purpose of blame displacement, to buy time until Christ came. The scriptures teach that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. That means there's such a thing as time, and there's such a, such a thing as timing. Things have fulfillment timelines. And when that time came, God sent Christ. But in the meantime, the law was doing its work to show us, to convince us to a certain extent that we needed Christ. And when the, our own readiness for Christ was here, God sent his son. That is to say that God's will was always Christ from the beginning. Jesus was not an adjustment that God made. Jesus was not plan B. In fact, he's not even plan A because there's only one such plan. Jesus is the plan. Not A, not B, not one, not two. Blaming is always shallow. That's why the law feels so shallow. Just do this and you will live. It doesn't work like that. Don't do that and you will live. It doesn't work like that. Blaming is shallow because there's always more to the story than fault or right and wrong, mistakes, accidents, crime, or sickness. However way you like to label what the Bible calls sin, 
falling short, missing the mark, not quite perfect, not quite consistent, not quite competent, not quite what you need to be or should be or want it to be. It's just blame that we fall into if we don't understand the nature of God's plan from the beginning. You think about the way we relate to the world. We see imperfection all day long. We are displeased by other drivers. We are displeased when we turn over and look at our friends and family and coworkers. There's things not quite right. You look in the mirror. You don't love what you see. And you immediately resort to the most accessible and shallow option, which is to blame. You resort to the law. They are wrong. They fall short. They disappoint me. They make me upset. They frustrate me. This is our way of being in the world. To remedy that, God gives us what we know as love. The full story is always there for those who have the patience and the wisdom and love to hear it. So let me break down what love is. Love is a commitment to the full story. When somebody loves you, what they mean is, I see you in this moment. This moment, I can thin slice you, slap a label on you, and tell you what you're doing wrong and what you're doing right, how you fall short of the glory of me, of the glory of God, of the glory of whatever ideal you hold at that moment. But love says there's more to the story. You are not just lazy. There's more to the story. A commitment to the full story is what we call love. A working out of the full story through what we call time, a lifetime, that's what we call redemption. If you, by God's grace, are somehow able to switch tracks from thinking and playing the blame game, that is called salvation. If you give up the blame game, you are being saved. Those who walk with you through the full story of your life, who refuse to judge you right now, these people are called friends. Those who live with you side by side, day after day, night after night, in the full story, in the unfolding of the full story of you, these people are called family the one and only person who knows the full story, this person we call God. The one who knows the whole truth, who found a way to love you, to reach you, to cause you to respond to love and offers you life to the full in the redemption of your story, this person we know as Jesus Christ. And this, I want to tell you, is the Christmas story. It's the story of God finding a way to love you to the end, to find a way to love those who are lost. In Christ, and only in Christ, the blame game ends, and the love game begins. I want you to know that God sees you to the full. He knows you to the very, very bottom. All the little nooks and crannies and nuances of who you are, 
how you were formed, what life has done to you, the crimes you've committed, the ways you've been living in self-deception, the ways that you are mean and cruel to others, the ways that you are self-righteous, the ways you have been injustice. God knows every single molecule about what you are and who you are and who you are meant to be. He never judges you. In fact, he cannot judge you because Jesus has rescued you from the blame game. God does not slap a label on you, but he says, I know you, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be with you. To the very end, I'm going to love you. There is no other being, there's no other God, no other religion, no other authority on earth who will do this with you and for you. There's no gavel in his hand. There is no robe on his back. He is stripped and naked and beside you and under you and over you and in you. This is our God. This is the Christmas story. How many of you know this phrase, El Roy? There's a, a, a Gentile woman named Hagar. And she was abused, invisible, used, exploited, blamed. She became a kind of scapegoat. And she, her existence was so tortured, she ran away from her master, Sarai, into the wilderness. And there she said, I want to just die because my life is not worth living. How many of you have ever, have ever had suicidal ideation before where the pain of existence exceeds your desire to live? And so she throws herself to the mercy of the wilderness and there she meets God and she experiences a tenderness and a mercy that she did not know existed on the planet. There was no judgment and she, of all people, notice it's a she, it's not a he. Notice it's a Gentile, not an Israelite. Notice it's a poor person, not a rich person. Notice it was a voiceless, powerless, statusless creature who probably should have died. God sees her. And he calls her by name. And she has this transformative experience in the wilderness of all places. And she is the first person in the Bible to assign a name to God. And she calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. This is the first name of God, the God who sees me. And I think about this story, and I think, man, if God sees me, who can I become? I don't have to be boastful. I don't have to be proud. I don't have to get attention. I don't have to, I don't have to toot my own horn. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fight for myself. I can just be at peace. I can just be at rest because he is Al Roy. The God who sees me, he knows my whole story. I don't have to over-explain myself to anyone. Do you know that he is El Roy? Do you know that he sees you 
just as you are. And so I want to tell you today, uh, this Christmas sermon, that it's your turn. If you know this God who sees you, who knows you, who loves you, it's your turn to find a way to love. I want to challenge you today to stop playing the blame game. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap that leads to death. Will you stop playing the blame game? You, if you are a child of God, are called by God to find a way to love and not to blame. Your choice is always blame, which is shallow and it's a lie, or love, which is deep and it's true. I want to apply this in one area that I'm just, I feel like our year is ending on this note for us as a nation. Since 2012, when I first came here, the first week I was here, I had a group from this church knock on my door in the office. They handed me political pamphlets and invited me to go door tagging with them. You know what was happening in 2012? What issue was there? Engage, let me hear you. What was happening in 2012 politically when I came here in September? Gay marriage. Christians were feeling threatened. They believed that they had to lead with position rather than posture. And since then, people have been lobbying me, little old me. It's not like I have connections or anything, except to the God of the universe, but whatever. Marijuana, racial tensions, Trump, Me Too, immigration, the environment, taxes, foreign policy. We have become divided because we have fallen into the trap of playing the blame game. If you want to substitute the word politics, say it's the blame game. And here's how I see it. This is just a broad stroke. Liberals, so-called liberals, love to lean into what they feel is loving. Love. They love things like tolerance and inclusive speech. Conservatives, so-called conservatives, on the other hand, they love to lean into what they call truth. They want to know, what is the law? What is right? What are my rights? Both claim what they have is better than what the other guy has. And the choice seems to be before us. We always have to feel like we have to choose love without truth or truth without love. And I want to tell you today that having to choose is both unhelpful, but not only that, it is unbiblical. It's a trap. And so many churches I know have fallen into this trap. So many pastors I know have fallen into this trap. This trap was explained to us in the Bible in a story that Jesus told that we call the Good Samaritan story. Do you remember the political story that Jesus told? There was a, a man who was robbed. He was left for dead on the side of the road. And then these, a parade of religious leaders was walking by this man. 
But you know why they couldn't help? You know why none of the religious leaders could help? Because though they had a call to love, if they touched this person, they would be ceremonially defiled. So they had to find excuses so they can walk past this person. They had to choose between loving and being a follower of God. Now you hear this with your modern ears and you think, how ridiculous is that? What's the point of religion if you can't find a way to love? Isn't love the point of religion? I'm not hearing anything from you right now. The Bible does not say truth or love or love or truth. The Bible says truth in love. I want to give you some examples. The Bible is absolutely, clearly pro-immigrant and pro-government. You're supposed to pray for your leaders and submit to your authority figures. Now, you as a Christian, figure out a way to love both the immigrants and the authority figures in your life. The Bible, more than any other book, more than the Kama Sutra, is pro-sex. If you want the verses, I got them. (laughs) And it's pro-monogamy. The Bible, as we talked about Hagar, is absolutely pro-women, radically pro-women, and radically pro-men. You go figure that out. The Bible is truth in love. The call of every Christian and every church is to be supra-political. It's to be supra-cultural. The Bible says there is neither male nor female, neither slave or free, neither Jew or Greek. There is a third way of being. Our culture is telling us there's only two ways. I want to remind you there's three ways of being. We as Christians are called to create a third space and to hold it to be a third race called Christians. I was sitting with Julie, our Julie here, beloved Julie, and we were talking about our church and talking about our culture, and she looked at me and she said, Peter, our purpose is simple. Right now, in such a time as this, we are called to be the church. And it just gripped me. It just boiled it down for me. What does it mean to be the church in such a time as this? It means this, to find a way to love because the alternative is to blame. To say you're wrong, I'm right, it's your fault, I'm good, you're bad, I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm always the victim or the hero. You're always the perpetrator and the villain. It's to focus on politics rather than on people. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says to test everything against the standard of love. It doesn't matter if you speak the language of angels. If you have not love, you are annoying and worthless. 
All your eloquence, all your positional grandstanding means nothing to anyone if you are void of love. That's 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I'm so thankful, I got to say, for our particular church and our particular people. Because for a couple of years, I almost fell into this trap. But I see clearly now. I see clearly now what I, as a follower of Christ, am called to be in such a time as this. And I see clearly now what you and I, together as the church of Christ, here in this local context, what we are meant to be. And that is to be a third place, a third race. To find a way to love. You can define your politics. That's fine. But you cannot let politics define you. Only Christ and his love should and must do that. Love or blame. Love or blame. I want to invite you. I'm going to give you from now through the end of the next portion, which is my story, to choose. I want you to make a commitment in your hearts that you will no longer lead with politics but focus on people. You, as a follower of Christ, the way God did in Christ, find a way to love people. All shades, all kinds. If God does not disqualify them, if God refuses to not see them, so must you. You must see people. I want to end with my story here. If you remember, if you were here for my sabbatical sermon, you remember that my core issue is trust. This is going to be my life point of recovery. I was talking to a friend of mine, a mentor friend. He's a uh, therapist out in Chicago. His name is Ross. I was talking to him this week because I was sitting with Julie again, different conversation, and she told me that I need to talk to Ross. And so I called Ross that day. Um, Julie's been really used of God in my life uh, lately. <laughs> oh, boy. After dealing with you guys for 40 years, I'm a piece of cake. Uh, and he listened to my story. I sort of summarized the whole year for him. And uh, I said, Ross, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? And he said, Peter, these are things I see. So Peter, I sense so strongly that God is working in your life. I see that deeply rooted patterns are dissolving for the first time in your life. He said, Peter, I sense that this is not Peter's self-improvement plan. You've had a lot of those. But you are finally letting go of managing your own life. I said, what does all this mean? And he said, this was such a gift. He said, Peter... I sense humility growing inside of you. Oh, church, I've been so arrogant. I'm still so arrogant. But here's what I'm learning. He's, this, these are Ross's words, not mine. He said, you are learning that people are their own people. They're not extensions of your will. They don't exist for you. You're feeling a sense of separateness. 
And you're, there's a willingness on your part to see others in all their complexity. And that there's more to them than it first shows. And I sense a growing respect for others that you are beginning to have. That you are called to be in relationship to equals. And he said the challenge for you is to surrender a part of your identity that you're so attached to your way of being. You've always had to be several steps ahead of everyone. And God made you smart and you've always been several steps ahead. But when you are ahead, it feels very alienating and disconnected and you are lonely and sad. And so you've had to hide that part of yourself. You've made yourself inaccessible to people and you feel disguised. And so I've been praying about these words that Ross spoke over me. And I, I knelt down this week and I said to God, I said, God, I burn my labels and categories. Who cares what I think? And I choose a deeper story for every person. And if you can see me, I can see them. I'm gonna love them instead of figuring them out. I'm gonna walk with them as equals. And I can stop being arrogant and boastful because he sees me already. And so I wrote down um, uh, some New Year's resolutions. So four things. I wanna be less direct less certain, more humble, and more trusting. And a phrase that keeps ringing in my head is, at all times, use minimum necessary force. And then it comes down to one sort of active uh, action for me, which is to live less as an initiator and more as a responder. So that's my New Year's goal, to be a responder. And God's been showing me, you know, what it means to be a responder. That Jesus, you know, in the Bible says he never did a single thing that God wasn't already doing. It was God's will to do, you know, it was his food to do God's will. And most of the gospel stories are interruptions because Jesus was responsive. I realized Jesus was not a leader in the initiating entrepreneurial sense. He was a servant in the sense of following orders. So I'm really looking forward to following Julie's orders this year is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I just mentioned Julie because she's been wonderful this year and I want to honor her. So. Uh. so here we go. I want to invite you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to pray your choice to God. I'm going to read these verses first. And then in your heart, I want you to choose love rather than blame. Got it? Let's pray. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For that reason, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the wages of blame is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, the full story in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, with your eyes closed and your hearts open, Choose this day which game you will play, blame or love.